Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z podcast is a daily recording that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. This episode we are reading two short stories from author James Grant published in 1874 in the book The Queen's Cadet and Other Tales. We will be reading The Queen's Cadet and The Bombardier's Story. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by The Sleep Channel on Spotify. James Grant was born in 1822, was a Scottish novelist and miscellaneous writer. Grant was born in Edinburgh, Scotland and was a distant relation of Sir Walter Scott. He was a prolific author, writing some 90 books, including many yellow backs. Titles included Adventures of an Aide-de-Camp, One of the 600, The Scottish Musketeers and The Scottish Cavalier. If you enjoy our program, please leave us a review on your podcast platform and share it with a friend, you may just both sleep a little better at night. The Queen's Cadet I have been forced to believe in the existence and influence of an unseen world, of something which is described in that line of Dryden's. With silent steps I follow you all day. I have felt the influence of the spiritual and invisible on the senses, though I know nothing of the complications, the deceptions and alleged perils, forming a portion of that which is now termed spiritualism and which affirms that the unseen world cannot become manifest save in obedience to certain occult laws which regulate the phenomena of nature. What rigmarole was this? Could this speaker, this man with a melancholy tone and saddened it, actually be the same handsome Jack Arkley, my old college chum at Sandhurst, who was always rather skeptical even in religious matters, who was one of the merriest fellows there, who had been once nearly rusticated for breaking the lamps and dismounting the guns to spite the adjutant, but who, as a Queen's cadet, had more marks of excellence than any of us, who was afterwards the beau ideal of a fine young English officer, a prime bat and bowler, who pulled a good stroke or had such a firm seat in his saddle and who was the best hand for organizing a picnic, a ball, or a scratch company for amateur theatricals, and who in the late expedition against the Lushais had won the reputation of being a regular fire-eater, a fellow who would face the devil in his shirt-sleeves. Could the champagne of the rag have affected him, thought I, as he continued earnestly and sadly, and while manipulating a cigar selected from the silver stand on the table. I have somewhere read that very few persons in this world have been unfortunate enough to have seen those things that are invisible to others. By Jove! Do you mean a ghost? 
Not exactly the vulgar ghost of the nursery, said he, his pale face coloring slightly. But we have all met with those who knew someone else who had seen something weird, unearthly, unexplainable. Precisely, but I shall speak from personal experience, so now for a little narrative of my own. We had dined that evening at the club where D of the Grace had given a few fellows a dinner in honor of being gazetted to his troop and to wit the new commission, and though it seemed to me that, like the rest of us, Jack Arkley had done justice to all the good things set before him, from the soup to the coffee in Curacao, he had been, during dinner, remarkably treased or abstracted, and took but little interest in the subjects discussed by the guests, who were mostly all upon short leave from Aldershot, and, the spring drills being over, were thankful to exchange the white dust of the Long Valley for the Row or Regent Street. We were alone now, and lingering over some iced brandy pawnee, as we called it in India, in the cool bay window of his room in Piccadilly, where it overlooked the pleasant green park and where the clock of Westminster was shining above the trees like a red harvest moon. So I prepared to listen to him with more curiosity than belief while he related the following singular story which he would never have ventured to relate to the circle of heedless fellows whom we had just left. My parents died when I was little more than an infant, leaving me to the care of two uncles, a maternal one named Beverly, a man of considerable wealth, who in consequence of a quarrel with my father, whose marriage with his sister he resented, totally ignored my existence and was ever a kind of myth to me, the other a paternal one, a bachelor curate in North Wales, poor old Morgan a priest Arkley, than whom there was no better or more kind-hearted man in all the principality. His means were most limited, but to share the little he possessed he made me freely and tenderly welcome, all the more so that to two appeals he had made to the generosity of my uncle Beverly, no response was ever returned, a cutting coldness and rudeness, bitterly resented by my hot-tempered but warm-hearted old Welsh kinsman. A career was necessarily chosen for me. The death of my father on duty at Benares, enabled me to be born on the strength of the military college at Sandhurst as one of the twenty Queen's cadets, and to that seminary I repaired a few months after you did, when in my sixteenth year, leaving with sincere sorrow the lonely white-haired man who had been as apparent to me, and whose secluded parsonage by the margin of LLY and Ogwen, and under the shadow of Carney David, had been the only home I could remember. There for years he had been my earnest and anxious tutor, mingling with the classics a store of quaint old Welsh legends and ancient songs, for he was an excellent and enthusiastic harper and had come of a long line of harpers. Prior to this change in my life, I encountered an adventure which has had considerable influence in my after career. From childhood I had been familiar with the mountains that overhang LLYN Ogwen. I knew every track and rock and fissure of Carnied David, of the black ladders of Carnied Llewellyn, and the brows of the greater giant of the three, cloud-capped Snowden. For miles upon miles among them I had been wont to wander with my gun, and at times to aid the shepherds in tracking out lost sheep or goats, 
by places where we looked down upon the gray mist and vapor that floated below us and where the mountain peaks seemed to start out of it like isles amid a sea. In the heart of such solitudes as these I found food for much reflective thought and was wont to give full swing to my boyish fancies. Under every variety of season and weather I was wont to wander among these mountains, sometimes when their sides seemed to vibrate under the hot rays of a cloudless summer sun, at others when the glistening snow lay deep in the passes and valleys, or when height and hollow were alike shrouded in thick and impenetrable mist, but my favorite spot was ever Llywynidwal, the wildest and most savage of all our Welsh lakes. It fills the crater of an ancient volcano and is the traditional scene of the murder of Idwal, a prince of Wales, who was flung over its precipice, a place which for gloomy grandeur has no equal as the bare rocks that start out of it, sheer as a wall, darkened by their shadows its depth to the most intense blackness, and the peasants avert that no fish can swim in it, and no bird fly over it and live. Lying upon the mountain tops, amid the purple heather or the scented thyme grass, I was wont to watch the distant waters of the channel, stretching far away beyond the puffin isle on Great Orm's head, ever changing in hue as the masses of clouds skinned over them, and from thence I followed, with eager eyes, the white sails of the ships, or the long smoky pennants of the steamers that were bound for hot. Where were they bound for? And so, far from the solitary parsonage of the good old man who loved me so well, I was ungrateful enough to follow to distant isles and shores these vanishing specks in the spirit. I see that you are impatient to know what all this preamble has to do with Sandhurst and the melancholy which now oppresses me, but nevertheless, I am fast coming to the matter, to that keystone of the soul which must exist in every nature. One day I was up a wild part of the mountains, far above Llyanogwyn, a long and narrow sheet of water which occupies the whole pass between Breakdidu and the shoulder of Carney David. My sole companion was my dog Sidham, in English, Wolf, which lay beside me on the sunny grass, when from one of my daydreams I was suddenly roused by voices and found three persons close beside me. Mounted on sturdy Welsh ponies, two of these were a gentleman in the prime of life, and a very young lady, apparently his daughter, attended by David Lloyd, one of the guides for the district, who knew me well. He led the bridle of the girl's pony with one hand and grasped his alpenstock with the other. This group paused near me and some conversation ensued. Lloyd had evidently mistaken the path and was loath to admit the fact or to suggest that they should retrace their steps and yet he knew enough of the mountains to be well aware that to advance would be to court danger. During the colloquy that ensued between him and his employer, a haughty and imperious looking man, I was earnestly gazing in the half-averted face of the girl who was watching an eagle in full flight. She was marvelously beautiful. Her features, save in profile, were perhaps far from correct Yet there was a divine delicacy, a charming purity of complexion, and brightness of expression over them all, and her minute face seemed to nestle amid the masses of her fair rippling hair. She turned towards me, and her eyes met mine. They were dark violet blue, 
and shaded by brown lashes, so long that they imparted much of softness to their dove-like expression, and she smiled, for no doubt the little maid saw that there was something of unequivocal admiration to be read in my ardent gaze, and so absorbed was I, that, for a few seconds, I was not aware that the guide was addressing me, and inquiring how far the path was traversable in this particular direction. Ere I could reply, How should this mere lad know, if you don't? asked the male tourist, haughtily and sharply. Few here can know better, sir, replied Lloyd. I have seen him climb where the eagles alone can go. Shall we proceed, then? he asked me, sharply. I think not, sir, said I. Molhebog was covered with mist this morning, and... But Molhebog is clear enough now, said David Lloyd, with irritation, the mountain sun named being deemed an unerring barometer as regards the chances of mist upon its greater brethren, so I think we may proceed, he added, touching his hat to his employer. I don't require, sir, to be taught my trade by a mere lad, a gentleman though you be, Master Arkley. Arkley, repeated the stranger, starting and eyeing me keenly, and yet with a lowering expression of face. I warned them of the danger of farther progression, but the avaricious guide derided me, and I heard his employer, as they passed on, asking him some questions, amid which, but it might be fancy, I thought my own name occurred. I gazed after them with interest, and with much of anxiety, for their path was perilous, and the sweet soft beauty of the girl had impressed me deeply, and, as she disappeared, with all her wealth of golden hair, the brightness seemed to have departed from the mountainside. What was the magic this creature, whom I had only seen for a few minutes, possessed for me? She was scarcely a woman, yet past childhood, and her features remained as distinctly impressed upon my memory as if they were before me still. Do not infer from this strange interest that love at first sight, as the novels used to have it, was an ingredient of this emotion. No, it was something deeper, a subtle magnetism, something that I know not how to define or to express, and with a repining sigh, I thought of my lonely life and longed to go forth on the career that awaited me beyond those green mountains that were bounded by the sea. Had I ever seen that fair little face before, or dreamed of it by night or by day, that already it seemed to haunt me so? The little group had not disappeared above five minutes when a sound like a cry was borne past me on the mountain breeze. I started up, my heart beating wildly, and with undefined apprehension hastened in the direction of the sound while Wolf careered in front of me. There now came the sound of hoofs and with bridle trailing, saddle reversed and nostrils distended, the pony on which I had so recently seen the young girl came tearing over the crest of the hill and galloped madly past me towards Llyanidwal. Quicker beat my heart and my breath came thick and fast. Something dreadful had taken place. True to his instincts as ever was the faithful Gillard of the Welsh tradition, Wolf sped in haste to the edge of what I knew to be a frightful ravine. There the hoof marks were fresh in the turf, 
the edge of which was broken, the grass too was crushed and torn as if something had fallen over it. The dog now paused, lifted up his nose, and howled ominously. I peered over and far down below, on a ledge of green turf, but perilously overhanging a chasm in the mountainside, lay that which appeared at first to be a mere bundle of clothes, but which I knew to be the little maiden dead, doubtlessly dead, and a wail of sorrow escaped me. Her father and the guide had disappeared. Partly sliding, partly descending as if by a natural ladder, finding footing and grasp where many might have found neither, mechanically, and as one in a dream, I reached her in about ten minutes, and, as I had a naturally boyish dread of facing death, with joy I saw her move, and then took her in my arms tenderly and caressingly, while she opened her eyes and sighed deeply, for the fall had stunned and shaken her severely. Otherwise she was, happily, uninjured, but I had reached her just in time, for, if left to herself, she must have tottered and fallen into the terrible profundity below. Papa! Oh, where is my papa? I was thrown suddenly from my pony, a bird scared it, and remember no more, then a passion of tears and terror came over her, with the consciousness of the peril she had escaped and that which still menaced her, for to ascend was quite impracticable, and to descend seemed nearly equally so. Above us the mountainside seemed to rise like a wall of rock, on the other hand, at the bottom of the ravine, where the shadows of evening were dark and blue, the sunset still tipped Snowden's peaks with fire, and clouds of crimson and gold were floating above us, I could see a rivulet, a tributary of the Aguin, glittering like a silver thread far down, perhaps a thousand feet below. Courage, said I, while for a time my heart died within me, I shall soon conduct you to a place of safety. But Papa, he will die of fright. Where is my Papa? she exclaimed, piteously. Gone round some other way, I suggested. And subsequently this proved to be the case. Placing an arm round her for aid, we now began to descend, but slowly, the face of the hill, which was there so steep and shelved so abruptly, that to lose one step might have precipitated us to the bottom with a speed that would have ensured destruction. From rock to rock, from bush to bush, and from cleft to cleft, I guided and often lifted her, sometimes with her eyes closed, and gazed the while with boyish rapture on the beautiful girl as her head drooped upon my shoulder. She had lost her hat, and the unbound masses of her golden hair, blown by the wind, came in silken ripples across my face, and delight, mingled with alarm, bewildered me. Till that hour no sorrow could have affected a spirit so pure as hers, and certainly love could not have agitated it, she was so young. But when we drew nearer the base of the hill, and reached a place of perfect safety, the soft color came back to her face, and the enchantment of her smile was as indescribable as the clear violet blue of her eye, which filled with wonder and terror as she gazed upward to the giddy verge from which she had partly fallen, and then a little shudder came over her. With a boy's ready ardor, I was already beginning to dream of being beloved by her, when excited voices came on the wind, 
and round an angle of the ravine into which we had descended came Lloyd, the guide, several peasants, and her father, who had partially witnessed our progress, and whose joy in finding her alive and well, when he might have found her dashed perhaps out of the very semblance of humanity, was too great for words. The poor man wept like a very woman as he embraced her again and again and muttered in broken accents his gratitude to me and praise of my courage. Suddenly he exclaimed to the guide, You said his name was Arkley, I think? Yes, sir, replied Lloyd. John Beverly Arkley, nephew of the curate at the foot of the mountain yonder, he added, turning to me. The same, sir. Good heavens! I am your uncle Beverly, said he, coloring deeply and taking my hand again in his. The girl you have saved is your own cousin, my darling Eve. I owe you some reparation for past neglect, so come with me to the parsonage at once. Here was a discovery that quite took away my breath. So this dazzling little Hebe was my cousin. How fondly I cherished and thought over this mysterious tie of blood, near almost as a sister, and yet no sister. It was very sweet to ponder over and to nurse the thoughts of affection and all that yet might be. What a happy, happy night was that in the ancient parsonage. The good old curate forgave Uncle Beverly all the shortcomings in the years that were past and seemed never to weary of caressing the wonderful hair and the tiny hands of Evelyn Beverly, for such was her name, though familiarly known as Eve. It is quite a romance, this, said kind Uncle Arkley to his brother-in-law, the young folks will be falling in love. Eve grew quite pale and cast down her eyes while I blushed furiously. Stuff, said Uncle Beverly, somewhat sharply. She has barely cut her primers and pinafores, and Jack has Sandhurst before him yet. He presented me with his gold repeater and departed by the first convenient train, taking my newly discovered relation with him. I had a warm invitation to visit them for a few weeks before entering at Sandhurst and, to add to my joy and impatience, I found that Beverly Lodge was in Berkshire and within a mile of the college, and so, but for the presence of the golden gift and the memory of a kind and grateful kiss from a beautiful lip, a kiss that made every nerve thrill, I might have imagined that the whole adventure on the slopes of Carney David was but a dream. Naturally avaricious, cold, and hard in heart, Mr. Beverly had warmed to me for a time, but a time only, yet I revered and almost loved him. He was the only brother of my dead mother, whom I had never known. She, this golden-haired girl, was of her blood and had her name, so my whole soul clung to her with an amount of youthful ardor, such as I cannot portray to you, for I was always much of an enthusiast, and I was again alone to indulge in the old tenor of my ways amid the voiceless mountain solitudes. Again and again in my lonely wanderings had my mind been full of vague longings and boyish aspirations after glory, pleasure, and love, 
and now the memory of Eve's minute and perfect face, so pure and English in its beauty, by its reality filled up all that had been a blank before, and I was ever in fancied communion with her, while lying on the hill slopes and looking to the sea that sparkled at the far horizon, into the black ravines through which the mountain brooks went foaming to the rocky shore, or where our deep well lioness were gleaming in the sunshine like gold and turquoise blue amid the monotony of the silent woods, and so the time passed on, and the day came when I was to start for Beverly Lodge, and thence to Sandhurst, while love and ambition rendered me selfishly oblivious of poor old Uncle Morgan, and the fervent wishes and blessings with which he followed my departing steps. A month's visit to Beverly Lodge, amid the fertility of Berkshire, many a ride and ramble in the Vale of the White Horse, many an hour spent by us together in the shady woods, the luxurious garden, in the beautiful conservatory, and in the deep leafy lanes where we wandered at will, confirmed the love my cousin and I bore each other. A boy and a girl, it came easily about, while many were our regrets and much was our marveling that we had not known each other earlier. No two men make a declaration of love, perhaps, in precisely the same way, though it all comes to the same thing in the end, but it might be interesting to know in what precise terms, and having so little choice, Father Adam declared his passion for Mother Eve, and in what fashion she responded. I know not now how my love for my little Eve was expressed, but told it was, and I departed for college the happiest student there, every hour I could spare from study and drill being spent in or about Beverly Lodge. With an income of 40 pounds per annum till gazetted, I almost thought myself rich, and I had three years before me, it seemed an eternity of joy to look forward to. At Sandhurst I was, as you know, entered as a Queen's Cadet free and a candidate for the infantry. I had thus to master algebra, the three first books of Euclid, French, German, and higher fortification, but in the pages of Straith, amid the revelins of Vauban and the casemates of Cohorn, I seemed to see only the name and the tender eyes of Eve. The daily drills, in which I was at first an enthusiast, became dull and prosaic, and hourly I made terrible mistakes, for Eve's voice was ever in my ear and her delicate beauty haunted me, for wondrously delicate it became as consumption, which she fatally inherited from her mother, shed over it a medium that was alike soft and alluring. Since then I have met girls of all kinds everywhere. The only a sub I have been dressed for, played for, sung for, but never have I had the delight of those remembered days that were passed with Eve Beverly in our dream of cousinly love, however, a rude waking was at hand. When she was eighteen, and I a year older, she told me one day that her father had been insisting upon her marrying an old friend of his, a retired Sutter judge, who had proposed in form, but she had laughed at the idea. Absurd! It is so funny of Papa to have a husband ready cut and dry for me, is it not, Jack? said she. I did not think so but my heart beat painfully as I leaned caressingly over her and played with her beautiful hair. I don't thank him for selecting a husband for me, Jack, dear, she continued, pouting, do you? Certainly not, 
Eve. But I must prepare my mind for the awful event, said she, looking up at me with a bright, waggish smile. The time was fast approaching, however, when neither of us could see anything funny in the prospect, for the awful event became alarmingly palpable when one day she met me with tears and threw herself on my breast, saying, Save me, dearest Jack, save me. From whom? Papa and his odious old Sutter Judge, Jack, love. You know that I must marry you, and you only. The devil he does, said a voice, sharply, and there, grim as Ajax, stood Uncle Beverly, with hands clenched and brows knit. My sister married his father, a beggar, with only his pay, and now, Minx, you dare to love their son, by heavens, with no pay at all. Leave this house, sir, be gone instantly, he added, furiously, to me. I would rather that she had broken her neck on the mountains than treated me to a scene like this. The gates of Beverly Lodge closed behind me, and her dream was over. Half my life seemed to have left me. After three years of such delightful intercourse, I could not adopt the conviction that I should never see her again, and in a very unenviable state of mind, I entered the college, where you may remember meeting me under the Doric portico and saying, What's up, Jack? But let me congratulate you. On what? I asked sulkily. Your appointment to the buffs. The Gazette has just come from town. They are stationed at Jubalpur. And so it proved that the very day I lost her saw me in the service with India and a far and final separation before us. Necessity compelled us to prepare for an almost instant departure. Short leave was given me by the Adjutant General and I had to join the Kandahar transport going with drafts from Chatham for the east on a certain day. Rumors reached me of Eve being seriously ill. She was secluded from me and there was every chance that I should see her no more. A letter came from her imploring me to meet her for the last time at a spot known to us both, a green lane that led to a churchyard style, the scene of many a tender tryst and blissful hour as it was a place where overhanging trees with the golden apple, the purple damson, and the plum formed a very bower and where few or none ever came save on Sunday and there we met for the last time. There once again her head lay on my shoulder, my circling arm was round her and her hot, tremulous hand was clasped in mine. I was shocked by the change I perceived in her. Painful was her pallor to look upon, there were circles dark as her lashes under her sad, melancholy eyes, her nostrils and lips were unnaturally pink, she had a short, dry cough, and blood appeared more than once upon her handkerchief. Consumption on one hand and parental tyranny on the other were fast doing their fatal work. Her father was pitiless and inexorable, wonderfully, infamously so as he was so rich that mere money was no object and as she was his only child and one so tender and so fragile. 
His studied system of deliberate worry had wrung a consent from her. She was to marry the old judge, and in more ways than one I felt that too surely I was losing her forever. She could not go out with me. I felt desperate and in silence folded her again and again to my breast. At last the ting-tong of the old church clock announced the hour when we must part, never to meet again, and the fatal sound struck us like a shock of electricity. Jack, my dearest, my dearest, she whispered wildly, I don't think I shall live very long now. I may, I must, die very soon, but the spirit is imperishable, and I shall always be with you, wherever you may be, wherever you may go, hovering near you, I hope, like a guardian angel. Her words struck me as strange and wild. I did not attach much importance to them then, but they have had a strange and terrible significance since. Would you welcome me? She asked with a mournful smile. Dead or living, shall I welcome you? I replied with mournful ardor. Then kiss me once again, dear Jack, and now we part in this world at least. Another wild, passionate embrace and all was over. In a minute later I was galloping far from the villa to reach the railway. I saw her beloved face no more, but voice and face and kiss were all with me still. Would a time ever come when I might forgot them? Adverse winds detained us long in the channel, but we cleared it at last and the last times that came on board announced the marriage of this unhappy girl. Six months subsequent found me in cantonments at Nimuch with a small detachment of ours and an hourly expectation of the mutiny which had broken out at Merit and Delhi with such horrors being imitated there that we had sworn the sepoys to be true to their salt, the Mohammedans on the Quran, the Hindus on the waters of the Ganges and the other darkies on whatever was most sacred to them and if they revolted, all Europeans were to seek instant shelter in the fort. It was the night of the June 3rd, one of the loveliest I ever saw in India. The moonlight was radiant as midday and not a cloud was visible throughout the blue expanse of heaven. I was lying in my bungalow with sword and revolver beside me as we could not count upon the events of an hour for all Hindostan seemed to be going to chaos in blood and outrage. The cantonment curries had clanged midnight, my eyes were closing heavily, and when just about to sleep I thought that my name was uttered by someone near me, very softly, very tenderly, and with an accent that thrilled my heart's core. Starting, I looked up, and there, oh my god, there, in the slanting light of the moon, like a glorified spirit, with a brightness all about her, was the figure of Eve Beverly bending over me with all her golden hair unbound and a garment like a shroud or robe about her. Entranced, enchained by love as much as by mortal terror, I could not move or speak while nearer she bent to kiss my brow, but I felt not the pressure of her lips, though reading in her starry, violet eyes a divine intensity of expression, a mournful, unspeakable tenderness when, pointing in the direction of the fort, she disappeared. It is a dread, a dreadful dream, said I, 
starting to my feet preternaturally awake to hear the sound of artillery, the rattle of musketry, the yells of Dean. Dean and the shrieks of those who were perishing, for the mutineers had risen and the 1st Cavalry, the 72nd Enlai, and Walker's artillery had commenced the work of massacre. I rushed forth and at the moment I left my bungalow on one side it was set in flames and fired through from the other. I fled to the fort which, thanks to my dream, for such I supposed it to be, I reached in safety while many perished for all the station was sheeted now with flame. Once again I had that dream, so wild and strange, when a deadly peril threatened me. I was hiding in the jungle, alone and in great misery, near Jehaskar, a fugitive. The time was noon, and I had dropped asleep under the deep, cool shadow of a thicket, when that weird vision of Eve came before me, soft and sad, tender and intense, with her loving eyes and flowing hair, as, with hands outstretched, she beckoned me to follow her. A cry escaped me, and I awoke. Was my Eve indeed dead? I asked of myself, and was it her intellectual spirit, her pure essence, that imperishable something engendered in us all from a higher source, that followed me as a guardian angel? I remembered her parting words. The idea suggested was sadly sweet and terrible, and so, as a sense of her perpetual presence as a spirit wife hovered at all times about me, controlling all my actions, rendered me unfit for society, till at Calcutta, a crisis was put to all this. With some of the 72nd and other Europeans who had escaped from Nemuch or had distinguished themselves, as the Herkaru had it, I once went to be photographed at the famous studio near the corner of the Strand. I sat, in succession, alone and in a group, after being posed in the usual fashion with an iron hoop at the nape of my neck. On examining the first negative, an expression of perplexity and astonishment came over the face of the artist. Strange, sir, said he, most unaccountable. What is strange? What is unaccountable? asked several. Another figure that is not in the room appears at Captain Arkley's back, a woman, by Jove, he replied, placing the glass over a piece of black velvet, and there, there, oh, there could be no doubt of it, was faintly indicated the outline of one whose face and form had been but too vividly impressed on my heart and brain, bending sorrowfully over me, with her soft, bright eyes and wealth of long bright hair. From my hand the glass fell on the floor and was shivered to atoms. A similar figure hovering near me was visible among the pictured group of officers, but faded out. I refused to sit again and quitted the studio in utter confusion and with nerves dreadfully shaken, though my comrades avert that a trick had been played upon me. If so, how was the figure that of my dream, that of my lost love, who, a letter soon after informed me, had burst a blood vessel and expired on the night of the June 3rd, with my name on her lips? Such was the story of Jack Arkley. Whether it was false or true, in this age of spiritualism and many other isms of mediums with the world unseen, 
and in which Nemesir has ventilated his theory of polarity, I pretend not to say and leave others to determine. He became a moody monomaniac. I rejoined my regiment and from that time never saw my old chum again. The last that I heard of him was that he had quitted the service and died a passionist father in one of the many new monastic institutions that exist in the great metropolis.